Hey folks, welcome back to the Go Time Podcast. In this episode, Mike Green is who I get to talk to. Um, really an interesting conversation with a guy with uh, a ton of experience from the military. Um, really wanted to get a hold of this guy because he was, he's actually a friend of my, a friend of a friend. Um, and uh, it, just to get some really cool background on somebody that's had adversity and dealt with adversity in, in a different realm instead of it being something that is um for competition in a show uh to more of dealing with someone who's it's competition that deals with life or death a whole different uh take on things mike to give you a little background uh served over 15 years in the special forces in the army and including three years as an assaulter and as CINCs in extreme forces and focused on direct action and counterterrorism missions. He also served as an instructor for the Special Forces Advanced Urban Combat course, where he taught advanced marksmanship and close quarter combat training courses. Mike's been a teaching tactical firearms uh, since 1992 and holds a master's qualification in, in IDPA and USPSA. And then he has instructor ratings from multiple organizations, including the NRA, the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, U.S. Army, Surefire, Six Hour Academy, Tom Givens, Range Master Instructor, Advanced Instructor Programs, and leaving the military, Mike spent several years on numerous overseas U.S. government contracts. As a firearms subject matter expert, he's uh, currently hosting and co-producing his fifth season on a national television show called Trigger Time TV, and it airs weekly. And Mike also is a member of the pro staff for the Sons of Liberty Gumworks. So, not just your average Joe when it comes to firearms and training. Um, his training's got to be tight, man. Uh, lives depend on it. The ones that he's teaching their lives and the one that they're the ones that they're either rescuing or defending. So um to have an instructor that that his instruction matters more than just the average, you've got to be very precise in it. And I also wanted to find out the point of view from somebody who knows what and and it can explain to others what exactly is a government contractor. Like this is just a guy that's going over overseas to teach other guys, you know, how to defend something, just how informed, how well educated, and um how well equipped they are. Um these guys make their life's mission to defend others and teach others how to defend themselves. And uh it's a different mold of person. I love that. And uh and, and to see the mindset of somebody who does that. And when it matters, um, it's just really cool. I think that we can take from everybody else's job or mode of employment. And, uh, and if it's at a high level, be able to apply it to the job that we have, whether it's just, you know, the pursuit of doing better or um, it's the pursuit of competition. And um, that's what life's about, you know, all the experiences. And to know more about somebody else's experience and how it relates to mine. Um, so anyhow, um, 
I think education is the key. And uh, this is a really cool one. I, um, it's a different realm. And, um, and there's so much that's applicable to horses, training, and competition. So, here we go. My green. Welcome to the Go Time Podcast. Go Time Podcast. The meeting place of industry leaders, elite athletes, and game-changing individuals from around the world. Here we explore the grit, guts, and mental fortitude required to succeed in business, competition, and life that you've been looking for. So stop looking and start listening. It's Go Time with Brendan O'Reilly and Todd Martin. So, Mr. Green, you, um, so you spent 15 years in, um, as a Green Beret? That's correct. In the Army? What, what, um, what year did you join? Uh, for, for, well, let's see, I started off, um, in high school, I joined the military, so. So you joined right, right at, in, while you were in high school or out, or just out? Well, I was in high school, I went in the reserve program. So I went to basic training over the summer after my junior year uh, before becoming a senior. Yeah. And then after I graduated high school, I went to advanced uh, individual training. And then I went into a uh, guard unit, a special forces unit, and then started the program for special forces. And then uh, right after completing the the Q course or the qualification course for special forces, uh, I went right on active duty. Really? Yeah. So you... So you started the, um, so like you were in, you went to like special forces school while you were like in high school? No. So I, I went into the army reserves while I was in high school I joined the army reserves. So you were a reservist still, while you were in high school? While I was in high school. So as a senior, I'd already graduated basic training, but oh. I hadn't completed my MOS training. Okay. And so right after right after high school, when I graduated high school, I went and finished uh, you know advanced individual training to get an MOS, and then immediately switched from the reserves to a guard unit, and uh, that was a special forces unit, and then started the whole process for special forces right after that. Oh wow! So what was your MOS that you? Uh, I was a, I was an engineer, uh, army engineer first, you know, and then interesting enough, I became a uh, special forces engineer. Oh really? Yeah. So as an engineer for special forces, are you more interested in how to take things down? Or well, it's a combination. Yeah. <laughs> they, uh, there's a, there's a, I think half the course is construction, uh, you know, um, more mechanical engineering type stuff. And then um, another part of it, of course, is the uh, demolition portions or, you know, destruction. How so to take it down. You learn how to build bridges and then you learn how to blow them up. <laughs> <laughs> um so, um, I guess the way that we met or way that we are meeting is through a mutual friend, Tim. Oh yeah. Tim, Tim. So Tim Ferris and I, we went to uh selection together. Yeah. That's what he said is yeah. where you guys met was at selection and then your last name G and his last name, starting with an F that you stood next to each other. Yeah. And that's where you met. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Very true. Um, you know, like on, on a couple of different, uh, podcasts, I've talked about how, um, like, 
through adversity and whatever else, like that's where your, your biggest ties are with, you know, some of your closest friends over, you know, period. And I wonder like that, you know, may not be like you have the greatest things besides your job and whatever else you have in, in common or whatever else. But, you know, like the first I, I asked Tim, I was like, so, you know, like, is there anything like I should or shouldn't ask or something that, you know, um, that, that, you know, that uh, Green would know that, you know, I shouldn't do or whatever. And he's like, yeah, he says, well, you ought to ask him about, um, one thing was like the, what was it? Something like a, uh, water, water, water can deal or something like that. It's like, they're like, that must've been a pretty tough deal that like th this many years later on, you still remember how, yeah. how that made you feel. And he was like, yeah, there's like guy dying in the middle of what we were passing and stuff. And that, uh, and the funny part is he was like, yeah. And like green was the one that pushed us all harder than anybody else. And so that was kind of, Kind of funny, it kind of falls in line with that, that, you know, this many years later that, you know, it's your friends from, you know, from back then. Yeah. So. Yeah, no. yeah I was, uh, I was about 19 years old when I went to uh, Special Forces Selection. And uh, so I was the youngest guy there. And, you know, there was guys like Tim. Tim, interesting enough, had already been into the uh, Special Forces uh, qualification course. He was already into it, but he didn't have to go to Selection when he went. They didn't have that. Oh. And so interesting enough, there was a portion of it where they made him go back through. And so he had to go through selection in order to continue on with training. And so he, you know, had been around a little bit and yeah. he was one of the guys that I looked to for mentorship. You know? Oh, really? Cause here I am some, you know, punk kid. Yeah, 19 years old. Yeah. And I've got all these guys who had plenty of experience, uh, you know, senior and not just senior or NCOs in general. Um, I consider them senior people at the time, you know, but, uh, I know, isn't that funny though to think yeah. back that you know you thought the senior guy was you know the twenty four year old exactly, exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and that's your senior guy. Yeah. Uh, so you know, Tim basically said, "Hey, you know, if if you get in charge, you know, you've you're just what you're gonna have to do. The the, the cadre are gonna expect like a a brief. You know, don't worry about too hard about it because you know you're uh, you know just made E four, so." You know, they're not going to be too hard on you, but, you know, at least have your, you know, who, what, where, when, and why and a good plan, you know? And so, you know, I sat there with a little stick and drew on the ground, you know, <laughs> like everyone else was doing, because that's all I was doing was regurgitating what everyone else was doing. Yeah. Know? And we had a plan. We had to move, uh, we had to move water cans. Um, and they're the old, the old jerry cans. Yeah. Um, and there was enough for us to have, a line of everybody would carry two. And then we had like, I think two people in the rear that weren't carrying anything. And then, so we just rotated, like we would go so many steps, stop, rotate, so many steps, ah. stop and rotate. Um, and it became tiring, you know, very, very tiring. Yeah. And, uh, we just pushed through, you know, it was, figured uh, out. Yeah, but it was just a constant rotation and that constant rotation, constant movement, uh, I think the one thing I learned in selection was if you stop, it's hard to get going. Yeah. You know, so yeah, uh, that's that's almost like this the same in almost everything, right? It's, yeah. it's uh, the the um, I would imagine like going into something like that, like that type of selection or that type of you know um, training it would be um, you almost have to turn off your brain and, and get to a point where you're just like, oh, I just got to show up, whatever. I just feel like if I get there, then I'll get there. But if I'm here, then I'm not, you know, not here. Yeah. You see the start. I think that's the same thing with everything, right? 
that you get to a different part in your life where you're kind of like, my God, I need to get in shape. You know, it's just like, just, I just need to show up at the gym. Yeah. It doesn't matter if, how much I lift or what I do. Just I need to show up at the gym. If I show up, I'll, I'll, I'll inadvertently get in better shape. <laughs> That's 90% of it is showing up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it really yeah. is. It really is. So when you, um, so how long, how many years did you spend as in special forces? So I spent 15 years. Um, I went straight to, uh, I went after I graduated the Q course, I went back to uh, my guard unit and fill out paperwork to come on active duty through a, a recruiter. I uh, went straight to third group where they were forming up, they were new. Um, and then I spent two or three years in third group. And then uh, I didn't go to language school uh, like most guys did after the Q course. Oh yeah. Um, because I was in the national guard. And so I ended up getting a slot to go to Defense Language Institute, uh, which was a PCS all the way out to Monterey, California for Spanish. Oh, really? Yeah. And then uh, I PCS back to Bragg. I was supposed to go back to third group. And uh, I walked over to seventh group because that was a Spanish speaking group. And uh, I finagled my way back into or into seventh group after, uh, you know, showing them my DLPT ratings and scores and you know, talking to a bunch of E-9s and convincing them that, you know, I was the right guy for the job. And then I spent um, five years in seventh group. And then I got tagged to be an instructor. I went to the Special Warfare Center. Um, I worked my first, I think it was, I was supposed to go to the Anti-Terrorism Training Detachment. Mm -hmm. That's where, I, that's where I got a job at. But um, the push was they were making SEER school part of the Q course. Seer school. Yeah, the survival, evasion, resistance, oh, okay. escape. And so um, I spent my first six months working out at Seer school in the uh, in the uh, resistance training laboratory or the RTL, like the POW camp. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I would, uh, you know, rough guys up, interrogate them. <laughs> so and, you uh, played terrorist for a while. Yeah, yeah. And then is what happened was I got, um, um, you know, after things died down, I was able to go back over to where I was originally assigned to, which was the anti-terrorism training detachment. I spent about three years over there. And that was, that was phenomenal. That was a really good crew. Uh, I mean, not that the other crew wasn't good, but, uh, it was more of my, uh, my niche, I guess you would say. Yeah. Um, so we taught a, a course called individual terrorism awareness course intact. And that was a, a five day course designed for people going overseas, uh, typically being stationed at an embassy or some other place that was deemed uh, somewhat of a high threat. Um, but uh, you could actually bring, if you were a military person, you could bring your dependents over the age of 18 and your spouse. So um, if we had the slots and we would always make room for, for those folks if they had it. And then, uh, you know, it was five days of really great training. We talked about, you know, terrorism awareness, terrorist operations, history of terrorism. So day one was, you know, death by PowerPoint. Um, but then after that, everything was a lot of, there was a lot of hands-on. So oh. we did a, a detecting terrorist surveillance uh, exercise. So we gave them a class and then we would get out on the streets and you know, have folks walk around and drive around and uh, see if they could detect the surveillance that was on them. Yeah, um, does that, I mean, we almost need that here now yeah, huh? yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean it's very it's very rudimentary uh type of training you know you're you're specifically looking for individuals that are trying to target you uh to do harm um and interesting enough you know that is um i mean it's not james bond stuff it's it's more of awareness this situational awareness exactly. of what 
Ah, you know, I was, I saw a deal, I guess I was on, I guess that Tim Kennedy does a, does the, 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 what do you call it? He calls it sheepdog deal or whatever yeah. he does. And, and I think that was part of one of the deals that he did. Like, I think they had him like walking through a Walmart parking lot. And if, you know, you're walking through there, like, which, what's the probability of that vehicle having a gun in it, yeah. <laughs> you know, or whatever, just based on, you know, what the stickers were on it and what kind of vehicle it was. And, but just being aware of, exactly. of that kind of stuff. And, um, yeah. that would, I would be kind of, you know, I think that that would be something that my fear right now in the situation we're in is that we're going to end up, you know, the terrorists are going to come back to our land now and we're going to have some of that uh, concern with that being closer to us again. Uh, it's, it's always a possibility. And yeah. that was one of the things that we point out when we taught the class, we would always say, Hey, look, this is a course designed for uh, your overseas experience or upcoming overseas experience. But keep in mind, that what we're going to train you can be utilized here for basic criminal activity against you in the United States. Yeah, like um, like there's a there's a a ton of um, what do you call it like kidnapping for like slave trade in in like Houston is a huge port yeah. for our country um, for the for the slave industry. Okay, and um, and that would be like a really a beneficial deal for like mothers going into Walmart, the, right. just being aware of who's the guy around you or who it is that, you know, cause they're, I think they've been doing you know, so much. There's been a lot of reportings around that in, oh, wow. in this area. Um, I just, because I've been hearing that and I got young kids and my wife is worried about, you know, yeah, whatever and yeah. that kind of stuff. But you know, it's like being aware of, you know, things that are around you. We get kind of soft yeah. on, yeah. you know, what's around us that, you know, who's got what and that guy who's, you know, has something and who's not, you know, yeah. that would be, you know, I could use it for a whole lot of different stuff. Yeah. And, and you know, those are things we taught a, uh, a four hour block called individual protective measures. And mm. uh, those were things that you could do to reduce your vulnerabilities or your, you know, potential visibility of, of, of being targeted by the, uh, by bad guys, not just terrorists, but, you know, like you were saying, like, you know, do people put gun stickers on the back of their cars? You know, so <laughs> criminals are going to do the same thing. They're going to look for, oh, this guy's got gun stickers. There's a good chance that he has a gun in the glove box. Um, you know, we would talk about military people going overseas. You know, one thing they would do is we would tell them, hey, don't travel with a duffel bag. You know, get normal luggage. Um, you know, don't put stickers of your military units all over your uh, your luggage and stuff mm. like that. Um the goal was to try to keep a low profile, especially when they were traveling overseas. I think um, that's something like here in San Antonio, there's, uh, there's been here as of recent, a ton of, uh, break-ins on vehicles and they're almost all of them are like a Ford truck. Yep. And it's because they go in that middle console. That's where everybody keeps their gun. Yeah, and that's sure. where that's the biggest thing that they're stealing is the guns out of the middle consoles of Ford trucks. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, because, you know, the uh, the thing is that most people don't realize is that, um, you know, if you if the if the terrorists can do it, the bad guys can do it. But you can use that to your advantage for your survival, you know, knowing what they're looking for, knowing their tactics and what they do. You can try to prevent those things from happening. And that that was mainly the course that we were doing. And, you know, we did, uh, you know, that surveillance exercise, but we also did a driving exercise. So. We would take them out to a driving track and teach them how to ram cars and uh, 
how to break through barricades if cars tried to uh, That's barricade. That's what I want to do too. <laughs> that was that was fun. So every yeah. Thursday, uh, every Thursday I was involved in probably about twenty different car accidents. <laughs> You know, and I got paid to do that. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, that would be fun. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, and it's ridiculously easy because what you're doing is, you know, you think about the weight of a vehicle. You know, mm -hmm. you're talking a couple of tons, right? Uh, but the reality of it is, is that there's only four small patches that keep it intact with the earth. You know? Yeah. And that's it. And so you're not trying to move the entire vehicle. You're just trying to move part of the vehicle, you know. Um, you look at the lighter end of a vehicle, you know, where the uh, where the trunk is. And those you're just moving two patches as opposed to four patches because that's all that's touching the ground is those four patches of tire. And uh, you know you leverage your vehicle. You don't have to mash them like they do in the uh, you know in the movies. You can just basically push it away. Um, as an example, one of the things I did in one of the classes was we had a smaller car and had a bunch of the students just kind of you know push it by themselves, and they were amazed you know that they could push this car yeah. or just that rear end. And I, it wasn't just one, but like I had like seven students kind of push it all at once. And I was like, all right, now we're going to do this with the force of a vehicle. Imagine how easy it's that's going to be. be. Yeah. Huh. Uh, yeah. And then we did a, we do a day of uh, survival shooting. We take them to the range. We show them all the different weapon systems that uh, they could potentially run into um, just for familiarity. Uh, just show them. Yeah. Show them the operating, how they operated. And then uh, we would take them out on the actual range and do uh, a exercise where they'd shoot about 200 rounds of, uh, of pistol ammunition, uh, just to make sure that they understood side alignment trigger control. Because the, the, the diversity of the class was, you know, again, we had anywhere from 18 year old students, you know, who were dependents of uh, someone who was in the military to you know, maybe a, a colonel or a general who was, uh, you know, had plenty of experience with a firearm. Oh, wow. Yeah. But um, that's it was good. good. It was good exercise. It was uh, it was phenomenal um, because, you know, we got the opportunity as instructors to uh, to really uh, study things that most special forces guys weren't getting the opportunity to study. You know, um, so I had the opportunity uh, to teach, uh, you know, classes on resistance to interrogation. And since I just came from the survival school, SEER school, that was kind of where I, I was put for a while there was teaching that class, but then there's other oh, things. Resistance to yeah. it. And then you think about um, like, as far as, you know, what's it like if you're going to another country and you get there and you don't have proper paperwork. So imagine, you know, you're working at an embassy and you have a diplomatic passport, but maybe you lose that and then you run into the police. Well, if you don't have proper documentation, a lot of other countries, that's gonna be a detention. Yeah. So, you know, uh, most people are unfamiliar of what, you know, how to interact with police officers if they're detained in a foreign country. And that was one of the things we would talk about is like, hey, this is this is what you need to do as an individual. You know, this is how you need to respond to the police officers. And, and we used, you know, a lot of the information based on law enforcement here in the States. But, uh, you know, pr protocols are, are pretty much the same in other countries, too. You know, obviously, the big difference is you're not going to be arrested for not having your passport here. Yeah. Uh, but over there, you know, in different countries, that's definitely a possibility. But someone who's never really had a harsh interaction with law enforcement, you know, it's eye opening for them because, oh, my gosh, I'm being arrested. You know, like, what, what do I do? Imagine, you know, a dependent, a spouse of a, of a soldier that's stationed at an embassy overseas and. You know, she's like, oh, my gosh, I've never been, you know, like, imagine that. So as opposed to, 
you know, guys like us who may have, you know, in our teenage years, been in the back of a police car once or twice, uh, you know. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, you know, you look at the different types of people and we, we would teach them stuff like that. Um, the other thing is, you know, yeah, look at uh, being captured by terrorists, you know. Um, one of the things we would constantly talk about is rapport, you know. Uh, so rapport building was always a big deal, you know, because, um, you know, we find that, uh, you know, bad guys, if they have some rapport with their captors, that um, that they um, are less likely to do harm to them, you know. Yeah. So I mean, well, it's kind of like even in sales, right? It's hard to say no to somebody you know. Yeah, exactly. Saying yeah. same thing is, would be that you know it would be hard to harm somebody that you start to have a rapport with, or exactly. whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And you know, it's just personalize the person. Yeah. It's interesting enough because the uh, you bring up business. Uh, a lot of the rapport building um, uh, study guides that we had as instructors, um, you know, came from the business world in regards huh. to that. You know, so I mean, we had a plethora of reading material that we had as instructors that we would uh, you know dig into. Um, but it was interesting to see how the business world wanted to get rapport too because of the same reasons. But, you know, this was obviously for survival, but um, huh. um, it was, it was a, it was an interesting time. I'm glad I had those three years there. Um, you know, a lot of stuff in regards to just force protection, you know, yeah. um, security management type stuff, uh, you know, for the big levels, but basically bringing it down to how the individual can use it to their advantage, you know, but we would teach them like how to work with bodyguards. Like some people at embassies would maybe have bodyguards. And we would explain to them, you know, if you do get a detail, these are the pros and the cons and what you want to do with them. You know, we want to stay away from this and stay away from that. Um, you know, anything from, you know, if you're working with foreign nationals that you have maybe a maid or something like that, you know, ensure that they're clear to the embassy. And it was just, it was a, a, an awesome time for me. And it was, um, um, you know, a change of pace from being out in the wood line, walking yeah. with a, you know, 70 pound rucksack and, uh, <laughs> you know, well, you know, camouflage up all the time to uh, here I am teaching on a platform with a pressed uniform, you know, so it was different. It was different. <laughs> yeah, I bet you that would yeah. be different. Yeah. Uh, but I made a lot of really good connections. Um, we, um, you know, uh, we were, uh, I think that was the first year that Blackwater was open and they sent us there for a week to train at Blackwater as instructors, you know, to bring back, uh, you know, some of the newer, interesting things that were going on in the firearms industry. Hmm. Um, so um, it was, it was a good time, you know? Um, and then after that, after I, I left SWIC, I went out to uh, seventh school, back to seventh school. So that spent my last, uh, last couple of years in the army in a, in a counterterrorism unit. So, so when you when you talk about like different groups, right, the seventh group, mm -hmm. then so are those guys like. What is it about them or is each group like given like a like a section of the world that they're yeah. doing or yeah, is it their area, their area regionally and culturally language? Um, um, uh, yeah. Their area of operations and yeah. their specialties are geared towards that. So, for example, seventh group, the primary area there is Latin America. Okay. So, as a Spanish speaker, you know that's why I went to Spanish school and was able to get in seventh group because of that. So, um, when you when you do that, does it um, uh, 
is that the how many languages are you required to or is it normal for a guy when you get done to have the knowledge of just typically one language yeah. you know uh, my family's uh, german so i spoke a little bit german but i I didn't want to take a test in German until after I got to seventh group. So yeah, uh, but yeah, I have uh, language scores in German and in uh, Spanish, uh, but typically you know one language. But we were like, for example, I was on a mountain team for a good many years, probably four years in seventh group, and um, we would one of the we were a dual language team so we were we had portuguese speakers uh-huh. so uh but the portuguese guys you know we would go to spanish-speaking countries yeah and they were basically forced to learn spanish you know so we had guys on the team that spoke portuguese and spanish at a really high level um mm-hmm. i never picked up portuguese you know some basic phrases i would hear from the guys but i never went to brazil while i was in seventh group so i didn't have a need to but uh, like uh, third group's area of operations is typically Africa. Tenth uh, group is Europe. First group is uh, Asia. Um, and then the uh, they have two National Guard um, uh, Special Forces group that are basically assist in those different groups. And of course, I forgot about fifth group in uh, their area of operations is uh, the Middle East. Uh, but now there's a little bit of bleed over in some of that. You know, tenth group they I think have the northern part of Africa, and then third group has parts of that. So, hmm. but in general, those are the main areas of operations. Okay, they and they're they're regionally and culturally oriented towards that. So, you know, you have a lot of guys from tenth group that speak European languages. Um, obviously, first group Asia. You know, speaking a lot of uh, Asian languages. Um, but it's not uncommon to run into some guys who speak multiple languages. Some guys just have a knack for it. Yeah. Uh, some guys are, um, you know, are trained or already have a background in one language and then they come to special forces and they go to another language. Hmm. So they may be a native speaker. Um, I have a buddy who's a, uh, uh native, uh, Cambodian. Nice. And so he speaks the language from there, but he, uh, I think he went to school to learn uh, Thai. Uh, and then uh, he ended up going to Europe and I think he learned to speak uh, Polish. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's crazy. Some of the guys we run into and, uh, you know, I will say that, uh, you know, I, um, people ask me about, hey, what I did. But I'll, I'll tell you what, one of the most uh, most interesting things about what I did in Special Forces or, you know, where I did stuff at is not me, but the people I worked with because you would run into guys like Tim who were, you know, uh, you know, just had amazing backgrounds and, yeah. uh, you know, did crazy stuff, spoke multiple languages, you know? Yeah. Cause he speaks, um, he's, he, he is like fluent in what was it? Um, oh, what language is it to call it? I think. I think so. Yeah. But, um, you know, and that's one of those things you talk to Tim and, you know, every time, I've known Tim for years, but you know, every time I talk to him, it seems like I learned something new. Something from new, him. yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> like, what do, where, like, where do you get all this stuff from? Yeah. Like, I didn't know he wrote this book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I knew he wrote. It's, a it's book, a, it's really a good book yeah. too. Um, yeah, and that you know, like, you know, oh, and then by the way, Tim, you know, is close to being a veterinarian and almost knows everything about uh, you know doing that stuff, and then he you know can perform surgery and you know, like, where do you get all this stuff from? But yeah, yeah it's it's. I think that's probably the most intriguing thing about to me about guys in um in those different groups, whether it's special forces or 
you know, any of those special units in the different branches is that um, you, you can't be a knuckle dragger oh, in yeah. this deal. Yeah. Like you've like, these guys are, you know, sharp individuals, you yeah. know, and that, you know, come out having at least two languages that you're speaking and, you know, know how to, you know, do yeah. a lot of stuff besides just, you know, just blow something up, but you can yeah. build it up too. That, but also, I think the intriguing thing on that is um, understanding, and I don't think a lot of people get it either, yeah. but that um, the main objective for like Green Beret was to take a group and like more of a guerrilla warfare, but the guerrilla warfare wasn't necessarily just go and wreak havoc, right. but that it's, you know, like that you're, you're teaching guys from another, you know, part of the world how to like medically take care of themselves and how to, you know, take care of their livestock and be able to feed their families and, you know, and, you know, how to build a school, how to do civil affairs projects, you know, how to get clean water. That's Um, crazy stuff, right? That that's not just, you know, like just not just pulling the trigger, but it's also, you know, like really helping humanity. Right. I think that's the thing that's, it's not destruction. It's really, you know, humanity, like really helping and teaching those people how to do that, not because for any other reason, but that they can have the freedom that we have, right? To spread that. That's the part that really hacks my butt, you know, is to realize there's a disconnect. At least I think there is. I hope there's not. But with the younger Americans that we have now, haven't had any real trials, no, I, you know, I, I look at that too. I mean, you and I are about the same age. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I look at, you know, all of this, um, you know, the millennials and, you know, mm-hmm. we talk about that. And, and I'll tell you that, um, you know, I was in, uh, I was in Afghanistan uh, more than a couple of years ago, but uh, I was working with the military there. And, uh, you know, one of the things was this, this older warrant officer came up to me and I was like, hey, your guys aren't doing this, this and that. I go, you need to give, you need to empower them to do it. And he's like, Mike, you don't understand. They're not hard like us. And um, the reality of it is, is that they weren't like us. They're not like us, but they're smarter than us. Hmm. And I will tell you that they have the they have the ability to do what needs to get done to do the mission. And uh, they just didn't empower them. But bright, bright kids. Um, and they want to do the right thing. And they know the right thing. Um, you know, a, a, more than a month ago, I was at Fort Bragg. And I was working with some of the Special Forces guys there. And, and I would tell you what, they're much younger, but again, you know, way smarter, fitter. Um, they are a lot fitter. Oh my gosh. It is amazing. And their attitude was just uh, amazing. Really? Um, I, I was really surprised, you know, to see these young guys there. I mean, I kind of was like expecting, uh, you know, laziness or like, uh, mm-hmm. they were, they were, um, they would, uh, you know, we were, we were doing some training that started at nine. And, uh, you know, back in my day, if we started training at nine, you know, we would, you know, just kind of show up. Well, these guys were working out every morning, every single morning they were working out, you know. Uh, and the only ways, reason I found out was someone said something about, hey, I beat you on that run. I go, run, what are you guys, were you, what are you, were you guys working out in the morning? They're like, yeah, we do team PT every morning. And I was like, well, that's good, you know, because yeah. in my day, we'd have gone to Waffle House before coming to training. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, just, uh, I mean, work ethic, you know, um, it, it was, and people still complain. You hear some of the older SF guys complaining about the younger SF guys. And I think you're going to have that culturally no matter what. But, uh, you know, there was a, I can't remember who wrote uh, 
real band of brothers. Uh, but he wrote a book um, called uh, D-Day. And I think D-Day uh, was uh, was one of his uh, other books that were uh, really good. But in my opinion, his best book was uh, uh, American, or excuse me, Citizen Soldier. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> that book there, I think, gave me good insight to Americans in general, regardless of culture. The American, uh, American Stephen Ambrose wrote that book. That's right. So Stephen yeah. Ambrose. Um, but uh citizen soldier you know basically talked about prior to world war ii we didn't have a much of a professional military and so we took kids off the street and trained them up in a couple of months and sent them to war you know and it just showed that america did the impossible you know and now you know here we are you know went from world war ii to current situation where i'm working around these same type of guys who were not long ago we're citizens, you know, yeah. and they joined the military and some of them were, they have an 18 x-ray program now. So uh, that means you could go straight from being a civilian to being a special forces soldier. They enlisted directly really? for that. Yeah. So when I came in, you had to have another MOS and you, right. you had to go go to selection. Now it's a pipeline, you know? And so I was working with some of the guys there at Fort Bragg were, um, were just that, you know, they were 18 x-rays. And uh, amazed, you know, that, that, you know, a couple of years ago, these guys were civilians and now they're, you know, barrel chests of freedom fighting Green Berets, you know, yeah. and uh, you could tell by the mentality that they were, uh, you know, a different breed, you know. Yeah. Um, and so it gives it gives me faith in, in the younger generation, you know, um, you know, my son is uh, 22. He's in the army right now. And, uh, you know, um, most kids his age, they don't want to be in the field. They don't want to, you know, be out uh, camouflaged up and stuff like that and in the heat. And, you know, he likes that stuff. Oh, you know? I would live for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's where I want to be. Yeah. 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 Um, so I think that there's always going to be a generational, like, hey, you know, these guys, are, mm -hmm. uh, they're not hard like us. And I think to some degree that, you know, there's a little validity there, uh, but the difference is, is that they are different, but they're, they, and, and it's that difference is, um, is really a good thing, you know? Good. Um, you know, they'll tell, <clears throat> they would tell us, you know, maybe, Hey, you have an objective, you get from point A to point B and you got this wall in front of you. Well, we probably slam our heads into the wall over and over and over again until we get through and like, Oh, we got through where these young kids would go, Hey, why don't we just walk around that wall? You know, I mean, I mean, I'm telling you, they, but you know, they're, they're practically born with gadgets in their hands. Right. You know, um, you know I've got a, a there's so much old, more yeah. information at their fingertips. Yep. They've got to be yeah. somewhat smarter, just worldly, at least not, maybe not experientially worldly, but at least knowledge wise, they've probably got a lot more world experience or knowledge, Yeah. you know, just at their fingertips because they can just flip through it and find it. Yeah. I mean, I got to. I got a three-year-old who's on an iPad <laughs> watching, you know, uh, videos in different languages and yeah. seems to be understanding them. You know, it's crazy, things. right? Uh, I got an eight-year-old who, you know, wanted us to buy a coconut. So we bought a coconut and he sat there and opened it. And I was like, where did you learn that? He's like, YouTube, because I Googled it. <laughs> so, I mean, um, you know, they're, they're learning at a faster rate than we are. Yeah. Uh, we, you know, we have to mentor them, though. You know, we have to be the, the driving force to say, okay. You know, um, you know, I train my kid at home in jujitsu. You know, we take him to uh, uh, karate classes and stuff like that. 
but we still reinforce the positive at home and teach him go through his katas and jujitsu at the house uh, because you know the amount of time they're getting with an instructor is minimal you know yeah um, my wife is very big on um, making sure that our kids get the right amount of study time you know Whereas, you know, I never studied after school. God, you know? man, I, might, I never did. Yeah. I was like, I think that was something funny about when I did end up going to college. Um, I uh, I didn't know. I wasn't like I w- wasn't intelligent. I could, you know, yeah. I could pick up plenty of things of what they were putting down. But um, my study habits were horrible. Oh, yeah. Like, I just didn't, like, I didn't know how to study. I didn't have, I didn't have a clue on how to study. And as a result, I didn't want to learn how to yeah. study. It wasn't it wasn't enough, interesting enough for me at the time to, yeah. to want to. Um, but where do you where does your kids where do your kids go to to take jujitsu? Um, Karate International San Antonio. I think that's what it is. Oh, yeah? Kisa. Yeah. Ah, cool. Yeah, it's really a uh, really awesome instructor there. Uh, my wife is a uh, she's a traditional martial artist, and yeah. that's what we like about that place. There is. Uh, they're very traditional. They run a very traditional program, yeah. uh, Okinawan, and then uh, the jiu-jitsu program is really good too. So cool. um, we had took them out, you know, because of time. For we took them out of jiu-jitsu. Now we're getting to put them back into jiu-jitsu now that we have more time to uh, yeah. to take them more. Off. That's how I met Tim. Oh wow! Yeah, it was through jiu-jitsu. Yeah, yeah. He was he was he started taking jiu-jitsu, and we kind of. The gray-haired guys kind of yeah. gravitate to each other. Yeah, <laughs> so you go, yeah. We know we're not going to like. Yeah. We all got to work tomorrow, so exactly. we're not going to try and kill yeah. each other as exactly. much. And then awesome. you know, then we do try and kill each other sometimes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah kind of yeah. same deal. No, that's um, awesome. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I, I, I. You know, it's one of those deals where it's so more uh, readily available now. Oh yeah. And I, I grew up outside of town, and so um, we just didn't. It wasn't an option. Yeah. We get a little town and they're like, nobody was teaching any kind of martial arts, right. you know, yeah. out around there. Nobody would have made a living being able to do it. Yeah. And you had to drive, you know, like, and at that time it was like 30 minutes down the road, 35 yeah. minutes down the road to go do it. And it wasn't common. My dad wasn't going to go back into town to go yeah. and do that. So we just, we didn't do it. There was yeah. some, one kid that was, one guy was teaching Taekwondo and all of New Braunfels. And yeah. You know, my one friend went to it and I said, man, I wanted to do that. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah, I was like, I wanted to do that. I'd seen Enter the Dragon. I wanted to do that, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, it's but, everywhere now. Yeah, it is. It's yeah. everywhere. And there's a, I mean, it's gotten so popular. I yeah. mean, it really yeah. is. And that's the crazy part is that um, there's a lot of just guys walking around that know a lot more about how to defend themselves than oh. there ever was before, too. Yeah. No, so I have a, you know, I run a training company and, yeah. uh, I have a guy that teaches our combatives program for us and uh, John, John Valentine. And he's a, you know, he's a very humble guy, you know, and, yeah. uh, you know, not very aggressive. You know, if you ran into him and talked to him, you're like, wow, man, this guy's a, a scholar and a poet, you know, yeah. you don't realize. That <laughs> Those are the ones you watch. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he is. Uh, and he's a black belt in jujitsu, you know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, he studied the Army Combatives Program under uh, the originator of it, Matt Larson. So, oh, wow. um, I mean, he's, I mean, he's badass. Yeah. Know? I mean, just really awesome guy. Yeah. You know? you know, the guy that does the, this, the podcast with me, Brendan O'Reilly, it's just a, um, and he's not here. He's up, up uh, on a trip up to Oregon or something. And, and uh, but he, um, that's the nicest guy. I mean, yeah. he's from Australia and he's, you know, 
really nice, you know, unassuming. And, you know, he's had, you know, he was a top um, MMA fighter in Australia, oh, was wow. undefeated and then came over and he's had like six fights in the UFC and is, you know, he's like a, you know, beast, yeah. but he's just this nice little Aussie that yeah. <laughs> goes around yeah. and, like whatever, just don't, don't yeah. test it because, you know, and when I go to do, you know, doing any kind of jujitsu with him and stuff, it's like, ah, just you know he's playing with me i know yeah. he is and i'm trying to get something done but yeah. now that's true i mean because uh you know back in the day you know we uh we would bring the gracies to fort bragg yeah back in the 90s you know really um and we would train with them and it's just like wow. every single one of them were just like the humblest nicest guys you yeah. know and uh you know then uh you know because back then you know you didn't you didn't meet a white guy with a black belt in jujitsu mm-hmm so every black belt that I met, you know, was Brazilian and the same thing, just like the nicest guys. And, I, you know, I was uh, stationed up at uh, up in uh, Virginia one year and uh, I trained with a guy and he was a little guy, you know. Yeah. And uh, he's like, you you know, I told him, hey, I got a little bit of experience, you know, um, because well, you're going to you're going to we're going to roll first. You and me. You know? And uh, he literally picked me up and spun me around and then nicely sat me on the ground you know <laughs> and uh you know it was his way of basically saying hey you know i i can do whatever i want to you you know? right and uh you know he didn't you know it was amazing that that you know he was so gentle with me you know um but same thing he was like a, a cat and a mouse you know he's just yeah. playing with his toy with yeah. you yeah but, uh, phenomenal phenomenal yeah. But, yeah and you know i think that's one of the things that i really enjoy about jujitsu is that it's um being in, I can think the further you get into the martial arts and stuff, the more you realize that, you know, there's, it's like a chess game, yeah. you know, and the more, you know, then the higher the next guy is, you know, you're not, nobody's out there, you know, trying to, you know, jungle and jibbing around and knock people down and whatever else. It's just like, eh, so I'm going to move here. Where are you going to go? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and you kind of just, you know, and you're still getting in shape and you're still working hard and you're doing all that kind of stuff, but still at the same time, you know, it's a little bit of a chess game of, you know, are you going to stick your neck out too far? And yeah. am I going to take it? Yeah. And that's, that's, that's fun stuff. Yeah. I like doing that. So no, that's great stuff. I love <clears> it. Um, and I, you know, I love training with, uh, you know, my kid, you know, explaining to him those things, you know, uh, because I think the more trained you are, the less likely you are to go overboard. You know? Yeah. Um, and you're thinking, you know, well, and there's just something about even whether it's, you know, jujitsu, or it's, you know, knowing how to handle yourself, uh, whether it's firearm or whatever, you know, like confidence comes from knowledge. Yes. I got something that's really, really in- interesting to me, right? Is that understanding that confidence does come from knowledge. Like right. you can't, if I'm not going to send you in and if I had you go and speak on, you know, how to train a horse, well, you know, I, what do you... You're going to be kind of nervous about going into talking. And if you're going in to talk about training a horse to a group of guys that you work with, you know, you could BS them through whatever. But if you're going to go and talk in front of a bunch of people who own horses and who compete, then he's like, well, why am I going to do that? I'm not going to be confident about doing that. But the knowledge about something like handling a firearm, I, you wouldn't even have to write out an, a, an outline of what to do. You probably could walk into a room full of people that are knowledgeable about firearms and, you know, give them even more knowledge. Yeah. And, and it's the same thing about carrying yourself well, yeah. you know, and being able to like having that situational awareness, somebody walking around, you know, you can handle yourself. So you're not, you know, 
reacting out of fear or you're not, you know, but you're reacting out of, you're acting out of right. knowledge and have some confidence about the situation. Then being able to more than anything, not get in the situation. Yeah, no, that's, you know? that's amazingly true. And, you know, you see a lot with uh, like law enforcement, you know, they talk about, you know, there's that big group of folks that want to kind of defund the police. And the reality of it is that police need more training. Yeah. So the better trained they are, the more likely they are to have the confidence to do the right thing. Whereas if they're not confident, you know, you know, now, you know, they become more scared, more endangered. And then next thing you know, the only tool they can think of is the gun. Well, um, so isn't it that I, 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 Think I would think, right? Because I'm not, and so I don't know, right, any more than what I just the limited amount of information that I do have, right? But um, on the law enforcement end, the guys that are in the cars and you know policing, um, they they don't get training. I mean, you get training, right, to how to handle the firearm, but then they're not like they don't they're not required to have range time they're not paid to have range time that they have to do that on their own and then doing things like like jujitsu or or that kind of like i guess what i'm like what what you were doing if you were in the field you still would train outside of the actual you know mission that you were on right you were you were keeping yourself sharp you may not be hand-to-hand combat with people yeah. <laughs> you know on a daily basis but you're doing it enough training so that it becomes muscle memory whenever you're in a situation that it's not like oh well i gotta think about what class and what paragraph that was that we're, what do you do when somebody has you by this deal you know like it's not that it's just becomes reaction yeah and then you know especially with firearms so uh, you know, the average law enforcement officer, I think, qualifies once a year, and that's yeah. that's training. Some places it's, ha- it's every six months. A lot, of, a lot of federal law enforcement is quarterly. But that really is, they they consider that training. So some places, they just go to the range and qualify. And Ten rounds are warm-up, you know. Wow. Uh, but, you know, there's, you know, when it comes to training in general, think about well, the last time you did something and the next time you do it, the amount of time that tr- that tra- transpires between there is going to equal the amount of skill that you have. Or, right. you know, it's a theory of recency. The last time you've done something, the sooner you've done it, the more, the better you're going to be at performing that repetition. And the same with firearms uh, or combatives or, you know, martial arts or some type of self-defense. Uh, but people, they don't, they don't seem to realize that, you know, um, you need constant repetition and, and that doesn't necessarily have to be expensive. You don't have to go to a range every day. You know, you can dry fire, you know, um, practice getting the gun out, um, getting it up on target faster, using a timer. Um, I went to, uh, I've gone to plenty of, uh, firearms courses, instructor courses and stuff like that. And, uh, they would do different scenarios where force on force where we would use simunitions or, you know, paintballs against each other. Hmm. And, um, I've been multiple times you see the instructors talking to those of us at the top tier level and saying, you know, Hey, in this scenario, I totally expected you to try to shoot your way out of it. And they're like, but you know, we're, they're finding in general, the, the higher level trained individuals are able to talk their way out of situations and and actually not even pull the firearm. Um, And they're, they theorize the reason being is a confidence, you know, um, that you realize that, hey, you know, if, if you had to, you could, even though just because you can doesn't mean you should. You know? Right. Um, it's and, true. Yeah. Though. Yeah. And there are plenty of times out there where they would put us in scenarios where you had 
guns pointed at you from different folks. Well, being a highly skilled practitioner of firearms, you know that, well, I can't beat somebody who, I can't beat someone from the draw. I mean, right. they're already there. They're right. pointing their gun at me. So now it's time to deescalate. Um, but there were plenty of times where people who didn't know that would try to shoot their way out of it. And then now you've got not only you, you know, the, 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 you know, the bad guy being shot, but you're shot. And then maybe you had an errant round and shot somebody else. So hmm. all that comes into play. And again, the more skilled you are, the more you realize, hey, these are my weaknesses. Maybe I, you know, I'm, I'm not in a position to, to draw right now, you know? So my best bet is to talk my way out of this, you know? Yeah. Um, hmm. De-escalation, you know? Yeah. They, um, I remember there, uh, read once that, um, was it? I think it was Wild Bill Hickok that was the, um, he was, he was a quick draw and he, um, at that time there was, they would travel around and they would have, they would put on a show in different towns and they'd have, yeah. you know, they would have the wild Indian races and they yeah. would have all, you know, it was like a big, you know, entertainment deal. Right. Yeah. And, um, and he was like the guy who, you know, talked to everybody and was the commentator of the yeah. deal. And, um, but he was also a, a, a great draw shooter, yeah. right? Yeah. And um, and he carried uh, two revolvers. And I remember reading that he every day he shot six rounds, oh, wow. but he never had an empty gun, right? So each day he would draw the one, and he would practice his draw, but he would shoot that one six shooter, right? And there was always somebody that was coming for him or was going to, you know, yeah. so he's, that was his worry was that he might, so he never was going to be without a loaded gun, but then he would, and that's all he did is he shot six shots every day. Right. Yeah. But he was every single day yeah. he did that. And then he reloaded that one. The next day he drew the other one and shot six shots on that. And I thought that was really kind of a, you know, it didn't have to be that he had, you know, I mean, those guys back then, you couldn't, you know, run a hundred rounds through, you know, your yeah. gun a day. Well, it'd take you forever on, you know, packing that thing yeah. but um but it was always six shots a day and i thought that was kind of a neat deal that, you know but it was every day yeah and so it's interesting because you know when i was in special forces we would bring uh some of the top civilian competitors to fort bragg to train with us oh wow. um and we would always assume that these guys shoot a hundred thousand rounds a year and uh come find out one of the key successes for them was dry fire so they basically had, uh, one of them said something to me that was interesting. They're like, hey, for every live round I shoot, I have a thousand dry fire draws for oh. that one round. Um, because, you know, they can go through those repetitions, you know, um, without a firearm, you know, or excuse, not without a firearm, but without a bullet, you know? Right. Um, and they're building that memory, the muscle memory, as people would call it, but it's, you know, it's, you know, uh, but they would just continue to do that over and over again um, every day, you know? Um, some of them would spend 15 minutes a day dry firing. Um, you know, I talked to one of the guys who was a world champ and uh, his routine was he dry fired for 15 to 30 minutes every day. And then he live fired during the weekday for about an hour. Uh, so he'd go to the range twice a week for an hour. So he'd go like on a Tuesday and a Thursday and he would only shoot about 200 rounds. He said, sometimes only a hundred. And we were like, that's, that's not a lot. If you think about yeah. it, you know? And then he would save the weekend for a match or for a training, you know. But um, we just assumed these guys were shooting thousands and thousands of rounds. And the reality of it is they were doing thousands and thousands of uh, dry fire rounds, you know. Yeah, you know, and I would imagine that. So I would imagine for most of the civilian world, 
right? If you do go to the range once or if you're lucky twice a week, that um, you're probably standing in a bay, loading it on a table in front of you, and then you put it up and then you got the target and you're shooting from, you know, however far you are and whatever, but you're not drawing your uh, from your holster. You're not trying different positions. You're not walking with it. I mean, like, so then all of a sudden when you got to pull your jacket off and get your shirt out and get to your gun and whatever else, like you're fumbling through it. And now you're not, you're not insecure about what you're going to hit. It's just actually getting the thing out with, you know, and with any kind of proficiency and not fumbling and dropping it or whatever. And so, you know, when we would do CQB, you know, we didn't always do live CQB. A lot of times we would do what we call tape drills where we would tape out a, a structure on the ground, you know, just yeah. put white tape and then we would flow through, you know. Without weapons, you know. But Dude, the craziest thing I did um, before, well, I guess it's at the beginning, uh, before, before the before the whole pandemic shit went down, the um, Tim would come over and I uh, had a couple other guys and we'd go over and neighbors got 100 acres behind us and he's got his own little, it's like a range, but it's just like out on a deal. He's got a big, like a caliche berm that oh, we can nice. go shoot at. <laughs> and Tim, you know, quite proficient compared to any of us, you know, and, and this redneck, I can, I, you know, I, I like guns. I like, I like guns. Um, but, um, but I'm my favorite. I just love 22s. Well, that's my thing. I love 22s. Um, but, uh, we were, we would go over there and we'd go shoot and, and it was great. Cause he'd give us all these different little drills that we're all going like, shoot, I even thought it. And it's not a, it's, we're not at a range necessarily. So, you know, we can kind of do things that we want to. So we could actually walk down a, a target and do all these different deals. And he taped out a deal on the ground and he was like, okay. So, you know, he's talking about I like things that I even think of. Right. But, you know, I've got the doors on the wall versus in the middle of the room and what are we going to do? And I'm like, holy shit balls. I didn't even think about, you know, like where the door would be and who's going to come in and where the deal is. And so it was really fun. He said, okay, so you get this section of the room and I get the section as we come in. I'm going to go here. You're going to go there. You can come in with hand on me and whatever. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, you know, this is going to be cool, right? Yeah. And then I we get to where it's taped off on the ground and the door is. We walk in and I draw my pistol and, um, and oh my God, like I almost crossed over to where he was, where his part of the room was. And I about crap myself that, <laughs> you know, that what I almost did, right? And how that would have thrown me completely off. Yeah. And I'm not, you know, I, I don't know. It's not like I don't know how to handle it, but that was, that made me realize it put a little bit of reality to it too. This just not playing with the target. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and the thing that was shocking to me about it. So we did it and like, I stopped, freaked my, you know, freaked out and then went through and made sure and whatever. And we went ahead and shot. And, um, and I told him, I was like, God, man, that, I can't believe that. I, that scared me that, yeah. you know, that, that, that I almost did that. And I didn't even do it, but I almost did. Right. And, uh, and he, and he was like, oh yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're not scared that I just almost you know, yeah. flagged you with it. No, 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 you're all right. You know, whatever. This is nice that you, you know, you're worried about it. You know, it's like, oh. No, it's, uh, you know, it's, I remember years ago, we were overseas in another country and uh, we uh, were using an embassy and we fast roped from helicopters into an embassy and, you know, basically cleared a structure on the embassy compound there. And, you know, we're sitting there, we had, we had targets. So we had guys that were there already ahead of us who set targets up in these rooms, you know, 
and um, they were they we brought these huge metal targets with us on this trip. So they randomly put them in different areas, you know, and so we had no idea where anything was going because we'd never been in there before. So, wow. uh, but we had a, a crew that set all this up for us, and it was amazing because. You know, so used to training in a sterile environment or like in a shoot house that we'd just ran through, you know, over and over and over again. And, uh, you know, it was eye opening. It was it was it, uh, it legitimized a lot of stuff that we were doing. Like, OK, this makes sense. And then uh, a couple of years later, you know, uh, we didn't we didn't fast rope, but we uh, we we infold via vehicle into a uh, an objective. And same thing, you know, we uh, came up and. You know, there was, it was a live hit and, uh, wow. you know, we sat there and one of the interesting things was there's cages on the outside. So imagine your front door before you get to your front door and there's a cage on the outside. So that was like, oh my gosh, here we go. This is, you know, and, and we, everyone reacted amazing, you know, so uh. guy went up and put a breaching charge on it, blew the door, blew the gate lock off, you know, um, pushed it in and then then there was another structure and the guy there was a uh a padlock and uh a guy put the charge on and uh the other guy uh had a shotgun and he just reached around the side and blew the lock off as opposed to you know blowing the charge and yeah it was just amazing to see guys that i'd worked with for years that were just going at such a fast pace and just rolling with unknown obstacles in front of them and they were just able to shift and move and change based off just improvise yeah. based on their knowledge yeah. um it just it makes you realize that you know you're working with some of the top guys in the world and you're yeah. just like wow i'm lucky to be here you know yeah um but uh, amazing um and uh i think after that that was uh that was one of those things where we we're just like hey yeah i guess we're doing things right no one got hurt you know yeah. <laughs> we all made it out that day but uh yeah, it was interesting to see the guys able to move that fast. Um, and, you know, the other thing that was, I think, interesting was how, um, I think, how calm everybody was. You know, I remember thinking more about this is what I have to do as opposed to I'm worried about getting shot or something like that. Yeah. Um, and um, I, I think that just comes through repetition of training, you know, being. You know, with training horses, um, what, what, uh, I think of uh, there's different levels of training horses, right? So there's a guy that, you know, starts horses, trains horses and makes a nice, you know, using horse or whatever else. And, and there's, that's full training, right? But then when you train for competition, it makes, it brings um, reality to everything that you're doing as far as your training. And so our training for the horses um, that are going for competition to do them at a younger age and whatever else um, repetition is huge, right? Because if I need them to, you know, move to like do something at a higher degree of difficulty, but also at a, at a higher speed and everything else, then there has to be a muscle memory and, and at a point where it becomes automatic for them too, right? That I'm not going to get them spinning fast if they don't know how to cross over properly and keep their body in the right position and doing all these kind of things. So when we're teaching them to be able to control their body, um, I teach them to control the body because I'm not going to micromanage them. I'm teaching their body, teaching them how to control the rest of the parts of their body so that when I teach them how to do it, now I can accent it and say how to do it better because I have control of the different parts of the body, right? But the repetition creates the proficiency, yeah. right? And when you go to, to compete at the higher level, that repetition 
to that makes it proficient, there's a part where you've got to let go of the control and your horses be able be able to do it at that high level and have a knowledge of it, right? So when we're training on them, we're the higher level of training becomes um, more of a an accountability, right? That you're teaching them. You can teach them how to do it and then micromanage it to death, but where the top training comes in is when you teach them accountability, not only how to do it, but now you're responsible for yourself and they're never going to get that good until they have that responsibility. Um, and I would imagine that would be kind of a point where you all of a sudden, and you never know how much, how, what level you've trained them to until you get them to the show pen. Yeah. Right. And then you get in there and you get in the real deal. And that's gotta be like where, you know, where you were felt when you come out of there, it was like, Oh, well, it actually worked. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, 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 and everybody else was just as, and when you're in that situation, I'm curious because I have not been in a live fire situation, but when you get in that situation, kind of like in the, in the competition, the show pen, if you've been in there enough, right. That it does slow down. It yeah. slows down. There's like a crazy calm about it. And if you're, you can get past that point and get and done it enough that there's just like, you just, like you're thinking, like, I'm not worried about getting shot. I'm just doing my job because if I do my job, he does his job and yeah. he does his job. I'm not going to get shot, yeah. you know, kind of deal. Um, but you'd have to trust, get to the where you trust yeah. that with the guys that you're working with. Yeah. Uh, that'd be kind of a cool deal. And yeah. it's, and it kind of get that with the horse when you yeah. trust your training, but you can kind of like, all right, throw the reins out there. Let's see. I'm asking you, you got to go do it. Yeah. And that's kind of a fun deal. Yeah. No. And, and you know, when things happen, you would, uh, you know, when there's a, um, a plan that doesn't go as planned, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, you know, you, you, people kind of freak out a little bit. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to see how people react because that, I think that is the true, uh, indicator of, tr of levels of training is when things don't go the way they should, you know, how do how do people react? You know? Mm, yeah. Um, I remember we were, uh, we were ambushed on, uh, in Iraq one time we were in vehicles and uh, I got out of the vehicle and I had a, uh, I had a saw, you know, it's a, a machine gun, light um, squad automatic weapon. Yeah. I had a, one of the paratrooper ones, you know, so it was real saw, real short. And uh, I've got a, a hundred round drum on this thing. You know? <laughs> and I jump out of the vehicle, you know, and there's all my guys, and everyone's doing everything that they need to be doing. And then all of a sudden here's zip crash. That hundred round drum just fell off. And that zip was the rounds coming out and that belt. Oh, geez. And everyone just kind of looked at me. You know? <laughs> and, uh, at this point, I'm less worried about getting killed, but more worried about being embarrassed in front of my guys. You know? <laughs> and so I look like Rambo. I slung all those rounds over, you know, around, over my shoulder. Uh, but, you know, I, it didn't stop me from doing what I needed to do, you know? Right. No one there really, wasn't a panic in yeah. it. Right. But, you know, after everything was all said and done, you know the guys you know they gave got a little crap. bit of trouble yeah. on that one yeah not trouble but they gave me crap yeah, yeah. You know? like it was an embarrassing thing yeah, like, yeah. Hey, you know what happened how about that <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh it's interesting where you can look back at an incident right there where you know we had multiple people get injured and shot that day but uh afterwards we look back and we find some humor and you know just something like that you know? yeah uh but that's just i think the mentality of the folks that you work with you know yeah uh, yeah, that was uh, an interesting time, but uh, it's uh, it, I definitely have to say that the ability to react when something happens 
is is you know just training for multiple scenarios you know mm -hmm. and uh the more you do stuff the better you're going to be prepared you know i mean um and i think that's at any level you know if, just uh, having the knowledge right yeah, yeah yeah so um you know i i started shooting um civilian competitions were you know not long ago and uh i kind of dabbled in them here and there in the past but i think one of the biggest differences is that now when i make a mistake or i mess something up that it doesn't doesn't ruin the rest of the run you know mm. whereas in the past it would have been like because i'm thinking about a competition you know yeah and i'm like oh okay so i mean it's nothing that most people would say hey you know I, the average person would look and say oh you did well and it's like well no i didn't you know i know that i messed up mm -hmm. you know but um you know at the top top levels of competition i i don't care what uh what sport it is uh, I think the the reoccurring theme that I've heard over and over again is it's not who is the best. It's who makes the least amount of mistakes mm -hmm. that wins. Yeah. And so knowing that, I realized that just like in the, in the military, um, a yeah. mistake can be, uh, you can overcome them. Yeah. Yeah, it, for sure. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Go Time Podcast with Todd Martin and Brendan O'Reilly. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Go Time Ranch so you can come work with us each day to learn, have fun, and be inspired. For information on bookings and merchandise, please visit www.gotimeranch.com.